Well, turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 3 this morning. You know, we kind of left off in mid-thought last week, and I'm sorry about that. I just, I I didn't quite get to where I wanted to get to kind of end in a nice, clean way. But the great thing about that is it gives me a chance to review. It gives us a chance to kind of build up and see where we were going and and where we're going to go this morning. But the book of Romans, again, let's just kind of get our big picture hats on for a second. See, God requires righteousness of each one of us to go to heaven. And it's not a great-on-the-curve type of righteousness. It's a perfect righteousness. It's a righteousness that's equal to his. And Paul has systematically gone through the first three chapters to show us and to prove to us that nobody, no, not one, not even you, not even me, we don't have the righteousness needed to get to heaven. We got a big problem. That's what Paul is saying. In fact, if you look at how he he closes the section in chapter 3 and verse 20, it says that no one will be justified in his sight based upon the law or based upon doing good, based upon getting religious, based upon trying to put it all together and earn our way there. Nobody can do it. That was Paul's conclusion. Here's the beautiful thing about what God did, though. God provides righteousness in the gospel. God provides righteousness where he did all the work, And you simply have to believe that his work was enough. You have to simply believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again. And if you believe that this morning, what we looked at last week and what we've been looking at is that God himself will declare you righteous. That's what we need. And that's what the book of Romans describes. And this is what God provides through the gospel. And so we're going to see, and what we looked at last week, and and you'll see the title of the message this morning is, what is God pointing at? You know, I I used to have friends growing up, and and there was this big thing at the lunch table, and they would, you know, you'd be talking to them, and they'd they'd start going like this to you. And what would you naturally do? What do you think you naturally do? You're eating at a table, someone goes like this. You think they're telling you something's on your face, so you start, you start kind of wiping it off, and then they start laughing because you didn't have anything on your face. And so when people point at things, you naturally look. You know, if I said, you know, look right back over there. You know, most, most people, now that you know that I'm telling you to look, you're not going to look. But if I was like, look back over there in the corner, you'd look. And so this morning, we're going to look at what's God pointing at? What does God point his finger at? And this, this passage is going to tell us, um, Darren had read it earlier, but look in verse 25 it says uh, this word uh, at the end of the, toward the in, middle of the verse, it says to demonstrate his righteousness. Verse 26, the beginning of the verse, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. That word simply means that God's pointing his finger. How is God pointing his finger? What is he trying to demonstrate? How is he trying to demonstrate his righteousness? What's he pointing at this morning? And we're going to look at, what God is pointing at. And and we're going to see that God took care of man's sin penalty on the cross of Jesus Christ. And not only did he take care of it, but he took care of it in full public view because God has this high standard and he's not like some judge that's going to go into the back room and deal in a back alley and let people pay their way or merit their way or earn their way to heaven. He's not going to just say, well, I like you, so I'm going to let you in, but I don't like you, so I'm not going to let you in. God takes care of it in full public display. He executes his justice, and yet he's devised a way that he can still accept sinful man to heaven. We, at, we said last week, the wrong question to ask is how um, can a loving God send people to hell? The right question to ask is how can a just God let sinful people into heaven? That's the right question to ask. And see, our passage this morning is going to answer that. 
Because in full public display, God put forth and showed forth his justice, and yet he also showed forth his love, and he did it all on the same day in human history 2,000 years ago. He did it on a hill called Golgotha when the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, was nailed to a tree, and on that day he paid the penalty for your sins and my sins and the sins of the entire world. And see, God put it out there for all of us to see, and God is pointing his finger at it. Do not trust in your own righteousness. Trust in God's method of making you righteous. Trust in God's method of declaring you righteous, because on that day when you appear before the judge of the, of the universe, you want him saying you're righteous. You want him making that declaration on your behalf. You don't want to be defending yourself. You don't want to be saying, oh, yeah, but I am righteous because I helped somebody over, you know, an older lady across the street or I bought groceries for somebody or I sat in church every Sunday. Going to church ain't going to save you. But God, the God of the universe has devised a way that he can declare each one of us righteous. And so we look, as we look at the cross and this public aspect of what he did and what he accomplished on the cross, the cross shows us that sin does not go unpunished. You cannot go to heaven just by saying, oh God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. That's not how it works. Try that in a court of law. You know, I had a, an opportunity years ago. This is before I was in full-time ministry, but I had an opportunity to go speak at a homeless shelter in downtown San Antonio. And I, and I loved it. Anytime at that stage of my life, I got to speak and someone actually cut me loose and gave me a microphone, I was pumped because I didn't get that, that many chances so I go down there, I'm working with a translator because you've got half the, the crowd that only speaks Spanish, I speak English. So I'm kind of getting my flow with the translator and I'm just giving the bad news. Right? You know, the first three chapters are Romans. No one's righteous, no, not one. And people are starting to get uncomfortable in their seats. I mean, I can visibly see this. I don't know if they were getting uncomfortable because they had to listen to me or that the message was hitting them. But I think for one guy, the message was hitting them. There's about 50 or 60 people in the room and this one guy raises his hand in the middle of my speech. Now, those of you that do any public speaking, that's a gamble right there. Man, that, you, you don't know what's going to come out. You don't know what can of worms you're going to go open. So, so I wasn't a very experienced public speaker. And even if I was, I, I just tried to ignore the guy for a little bit because I just figured eventually he's going to put his hand down. But no, I mean, he kept I don't know, he was like stretch Armstrong. I mean, he just kept going up and up and up, and he just kept turning in his seat. So finally, I was like, I can't ignore this guy anymore. And it's made it even more awkward because I'm waiting for the guy to translate Spanish. So I'm sitting there looking at this guy in the eye. So finally, I, I get to a point, I'm like, okay, I got to call on this guy because he wants to say something. I said, well, yes, sir, what, what would you like to say? Or do you have a question? And he said, he said, yeah, I just, don't like what you're, I just don't like what you're talking about because all we have to do to go to heaven is ask for forgiveness. And that was his concept. And, you know, I've heard that many times over the years. You know that's not even a biblical concept? And, and I'll tell you why. Because when you ask God for something or you ask anybody for something, the implication is they can say yes or no. That's the implication of asking a question. Whereas God says in the gospel, I've provided a way for you to have forgiveness. Will you believe in what I've already done? And so asking for forgiveness is actually a subtle form of unbelief. It's a subtle form of saying, I don't know if he's made provision for my sins or not. 
And so this whole concept of asking forgiveness, it doesn't even work in a court of law, you know. And, and this is what I explained to the young man that day is, you know, imagine you get caught red-handed for a crime in a courtroom you appear and, and the judge is getting ready to sentence you or pronounce the verdict and you say, judge, please forgive me. I'll never do it again. I'll be better going forward. What's the judge going to say? You broke a law. And the law dictates that there's a consequence. And so the penalty must be enacted. Even in our court system, you can't say, oh, forgive me, I'll never do that again, let alone the perfect judge of the universe. And so the question becomes, and this is why the gospel is so important, is because the penalty for sin is death. There has to be a death. And so God, in order to give us confidence, in order to give us uh, security and assurance, he publicly crucified his son so that you and I will always know that God executed justice. There was a death paid for your sins and my sins. You don't ever have to wonder about it because God didn't pull it off in some back alley somewhere. He didn't pull it off at Uncle Joe's you know, pizzeria in Chicago, back in the back room that's dark. He did it in full public display. He put him up on a hill. He put him up on a cross. And he said, that's where I dealt with it. See, God in his justice showed us all. He's pointing at what Jesus Christ did. He put it in full public view. And so let's get into the text this morning. Verse 25. And we're going to look at this first phrase, these first couple phrases. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. And so verse 25, we see this big word, propitiation. Okay, we, we kind of talked a little bit about that last week, but this word propitiation um, basically means that God is satisfied as it relates to sin's penalty. And as, we were just, uh, as I was just detailing, God put Jesus Christ before us in full public view. He set it up so we could all see it because he wants to show you and I. In fact, this word um, set forth or demonstrate has the idea of proving something out. He's, he's pointing with an effort to prove it out to you and to me that he took care of your sin. You never have to worry that God's going to come back for more. You're never going to have to worry that God got the cost wrong and said, oh, I need another 51 cents. Sorry, I forgot to hit the tax button or something like that. God took care of the full cost. Jesus paid the full price on that day 2,000 years ago, and he put it out in full public view. And this word propitiation, although a long word, it, it is very important because it means that God was satisfied in what Jesus did for you. See, God's satisfied. The question becomes, on a personal level, are you satisfied? Or do you think it's Jesus plus something? Do you think, well, I better do something just in case Jesus didn't go? In case, in case God slaps me an invoice when I appear at the judge's state, you're 51 cents short. You should have been doing good works. You should have been doing this. Do we believe that? Or are we going to believe what the word of God says? That when God says he's satisfied with what Jesus did, are you satisfied? That's the question. That's the million-dollar question because that's the only thing that can send somebody to a hell that they deserve and keep them out of a heaven that they don't deserve. What will you do with Jesus Christ? Will you believe in the provision God has made? And that's the, the message of the gospel. And, you know, as we look at this word propitiation, it's, it's an interesting word. I've got to delve off a little bit into the Old Testament here because this word propitiation was actually used 
of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the mercy seat that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. And I've got just a sample up here, just, just, uh, uh, just for illustration purposes. Some of you guys are probably like me, you like, vis- you like books with pictures in it. <laughs> so sometimes it's real easy to illustrate this, but this, this word propitiation was used of this piece on the ark. It was the covering. It was the, the covering of the ark. It was called the mercy seat. And it was on this mercy seat, which is, which is represented here by two angels overlapping. You can read about that in the Old Testament. But this mercy seat represented a covering of the ark. And you know what's interesting about that is it covered a couple of things in the ark. As you read, uh, you'll get this in Hebrews, um, Hebrews 9. You also read about this in, in various passages in the Old Testament. But one of the things that was in the, mercy, uh, was in the ark was a pot of manna. Remember manna? They were supposed to pick it once, just the amount for the day. And then on the sixth day, so that they weren't uh, picking manna on the Sabbath, they could pick two. But what would happen if they picked more than one day's worth on one of the days they weren't supposed to pick it? It would rot, it would mold, it would stink. So, so God had this incredible way. Well, they, they started to do what? They just, they loved manna, right? It was just watching McCollet bars all the time. They just said, yeah, candy bars, let's eat this for 40 years. No, they started to complain. They started to complain early. And so God would give them meat until the text tells us it was coming out of their nostrils. And so this pot of manna sitting in the Ark of the Covenant represented their failure, their failure to trust God, their rejection of God and his promises. You know what else was in uh, the Ark of the Covenant? It was a, a wooden stick that had flowers growing out of it. Aaron's rod that budded. You remember what the story was behind that in Korah's rebellion? They had challenged, okay, Moses and Aaron, why do you guys get to be the top dogs? We're Levites too. We can do what you do. Why are you guys God's spokesperson? Why can't we be it? Well, God didn't take too kindly to them challenging his authority. And so um, after he killed Korah and his family and, and also swallowed up another few thousand of the Israelites who had followed them in the rebellion, he told each tribe to get a rod and to pull it out. And Aaron's rod was what budded. And so that went into the Ark of the Covenant. Again, another rejection of God's authority, another failure on the part of man. And you know what the third thing was in the Ark of the Covenant? The Old Testament tells us the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, was the, was the 11th through the 20th, really, technically, the first 10 were broken. Remember that? No, there's the 10 still. Sorry, bad joke. Um, so the first 10 were broken because of the idolatry. When Moses came down, he slammed those on the ground and shattered them. And so the 10 commandments were also put into the ark. Now, why is that significant? Because what does the law tell us? Does the law tell us how good we are or how bad we are? Does the law make us feel good? Is it a, is it a YMCA feeling? Everybody gets a trophy? <laughs> or is it you lied. You're a, you're a lawbreaker. You coveted. You're a lawbreaker. You stole. You're a lawbreaker. And James 2.10 tells us if you keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, it's like you've broken them all. And so all of these things that sat in this Ark of the Covenant were all designed to remind Israel of their failures. Not their righteousness, but their failures. Now back to the, to the mercy seat. One day a year... The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies 
And after he took care of sin, uh, his own sin through a sacrifice, he came in and offered a sacrifice for the people, sprinkled blood on top of the mercy seat. And what that represented now is that as God looked down on the sins of his people, he no longer saw his failures. He saw his provision for their failures, and they found mercy that day. Not only that, it gets better. The goat that was killed, his blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. They had a second goat. That stayed alive. And after they sacrificed for the sins of the people, the high priest would go out and lay his hands on the second goat and, and symbolically transfer the sins of the people onto the head of the goat. And then they would send him out, of the, out into the wilderness, never to come back again, illustrating this concept of having their sins taken away. And you know what the two goats of Leviticus 16 and what this mercy seat were pointing to all the time was exactly what Jesus Christ did. See, Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God no longer sees your failures, your penalty, the things that you deserve, your lack of righteousness. He now sees Jesus Christ. And whereas in the Old Testament, we needed two goats to illustrate this. Jesus Christ really represents both goats. He represents the one who was sacrificed, whose blood was shed for you. And he also represents the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He represents that second goat too. And so as Paul is discussing this idea, this concept of propitiation, he is talking about Jesus being our mercy seat, the one who shields us from God's wrath. Now, how does he shield us from God's wrath? Because he's the one who stepped in and paid the penalty for you. And he did this in full public display. This is how God took care of his justice and also showed his love at the same time. This is how it all happens. It comes together in the gospel with these two things. And Jesus not only covered our sins as the mercy seat did, but Jesus Christ took away the sins of the world. Something that the blood of bulls and goats could never do. It could only cover. Jesus paid for them and took them away. And that is a hallelujah if I've ever heard of one. And so um, we look at this concept of God demonstrating his righteousness. Look at verse 25 again. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood um, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Now, again, why did God do this? Why did he demonstrate or put him in full public view? Um, he wanted to prove it to us. He wanted to show us. He wanted to convince us that he had taken care of this so that we would never have to worry about this again. When you put your faith in Christ, you can be eternally secure. You can be eternally convinced that Christ paid for all your sins, past, present, and future. And so God is literally pointing to the death of Christ. This is his way of saying that Jesus and his death fulfilled his righteous demands of perfection, fulfilled his execution of justice. Jesus paid it all. You know, when Jesus, his last words on the cross were, it is finished, and that's exactly what he meant. It is finished. It is paid in full. I've paid the full penalty, and he did it in full public view. And that's really the essence here of what uh, Paul is writing, is that God demonstrated this or pointed his finger uh, toward Jesus Christ as a result of proving out his righteousness. His righteous demands were met. Now, we get into this next phrase in verse 25, and it kind of begs the question because he says, because in his forbearance... God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. And so it begs the question, well, wait a minute. If that's how we get saved, how did the people in the Old Testament get saved before Jesus came? 
Okay, if that's when God demonstrated his righteousness, then that means, Paul, that, that must mean that nobody before him could get saved. Is that what he's teaching? And so we see this concept of this forbearance. God in his forbearance had passed over the sins that were previously committed. And you know, um, I gave the title away there, but, but God saved on credit. Let's talk about what that means um, because it's important to understand when he says forbearance, it's a word that means temporary long-suffering. And so as it relates to the penalty for sin, you're going to see that God in the Old, Te- uh, Old Testament was long-suffering as it related to executing this penalty. Um, you might say that he temporarily suspended the penalty that the Old Testament saints deserved because they weren't, they weren't sinless either. They're very sinful, all of them. And that's why they all died. That's um, the proof that they sinned is death is the penalty for sin. But what God did is he temporarily suspended his wrath on these Old Testament saints. Why could he do that? Why did he do that? That seems potentially unjust. That seems potentially bad. And it gets worse because he says he passed over. And the word means to bypass or to, to wink at. You know, sometimes you, sometimes you do that. You know, somebody... Somebody's running late. I, you know, I, uh, the other day I was at the bank trying to go in, and, and they closed at 12. And I got there at 12.01, and the guy was there getting ready to lock the door, and he's like, come on, come on. You know, he winked at me. He me, kind of let me in. He shouldn't have. He was doing it according to law. He, he winked at me, let me in. And so he says, wait a minute. God passed over the sins. Why did God temporarily suspend his judgment? Why did God wink at, which is, which is what the word means, And this is why, because he knew that Jesus was going to pay the full penalty for their sins as well. See, Old Testament saints had their sins paid for the same way New Testament saints had their sins paid for. It just didn't happen before their lives. It happened after they had lived. And so God was looking forward to that day. And and the way that he saved Old Testament saints is the same way he saves you and I today. In fact, we're going to see that proved out in chapter 4, that God's method of saving sinful man has always been by grace through faith. It's never changed. Nobody has ever been saved by keeping the law. This is God's manner of righteousness. This is how he takes sinful man and can declare them righteous is through the work of Jesus Christ. Now, they didn't know Jesus' name, but they were looking forward for that promised deliverer that was promised back in Genesis 3.15. They were looking forward to the one that would deliver them from sin. And all of the animal sacrifices, the elaborate temple and tabernacle system of animal sacrifices, all pointed forward to the day when God would pay the entire debt for mankind. And so he was still just in passing over their sins because he still executed justice on their sins. He just didn't do it immediately. And that's what the end of verse 25 teaches us. These temporary animal sacrifices all pointed to the final sacrifice of Christ. And so we get into verse 26. Again, we see God pointing his finger, verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, God passed over executing just, uh, judgment on the sins previously committed at that time. And he was right in doing so that he could point his finger. He could demonstrate his righteousness on a day in history when Jesus died for the sins of the world. Jesus paid the penalty that even the Old Testament saints' sins deserve. And so the cross is the biggest proof that sin does not go unpunished. 
Sin has to be punished. God, as a just judge, punishes sin, and he did it on this day in human history 2,000 years ago when he sent his son, who did not deserve to be punished for his sins. What did the animals represent all throughout the Old Testament? The innocent dying in place of the guilty. The innocent dying in place of the guilty. Jesus was innocent. He had no son of his own that he had to pay for. He was the just one who died for the unjust ones. He was the righteous one who died for the unrighteous ones. That's you, that's me. Jesus himself paid the penalty when you and I could not pay that penalty ourselves, or we could. It would just take us eternity to pay it off in the lake of fire. And so Jesus took it. And look at verse 26 again. He demonstrates at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, God is just in his method. God is completely right in the way that he dealt with your sin and my sin. God is completely right in the free gift of eternal life that he can offer to each one because he took care of the sin problem the right way. He took care of the sin issue, the penalty, the righteousness. He did it all. He took care of it completely. He didn't leave anything out. And again, this is not some sort of sneaky politics or back office justice. This isn't something that he hid and he's only letting us in on a secret handshake. He put this out in full public view so that each one of us can see the evidence and otherwise be convinced or persuaded that what he did was enough. And see, that's the question this morning. If you sit here this morning and you don't know whether or not you're going to heaven, you don't know whether or not that you can know that your sins are forgiven, all you have to do is understand what the Word of God teaches in this case, and that, that is simply this. God is satisfied for what Jesus did for you. Are you satisfied with it as well? Will you trust in God's provision alone? That's the million-dollar question for anyone who does not know whether or not their sins are forgiven. And we know because God executed his full wrath on Jesus that he will no longer have to execute it on anyone to whom Jesus died in their place. They will not have to face the wrath of God because Jesus faced it for them. And so we see this beautiful truth that when one puts their faith in the finished work of Christ, God can be totally just, totally right, totally perfect, and he can still declare that sinful person righteous based on what Jesus did. And that's the beautiful message of the gospel. So verse 27, a natural question follows. He says, where's boasting then? Well, it's excluded. By what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. We're going to see that Paul, in verse 27, he's going to ask, uh, toward the end of the chapter, he's going to ask six questions. And he asks these questions not because he's confused. He's asking these questions as a teaching aid to clarify what he just taught. First question is, is simply that. Where, where's boasting? Um, since mankind can't attain the needed righteousness or obtain it on their own, how can they boast about it? If they can't obtain it or attain it, how can they boast about it? You know, I used to, when I played sports, I used to lift weights. And one of the things I, I used to uh, like to do was bench press. Everyone know bench press? At least familiar with it? Lay down and you're, you're kind of lifting the bar up. Yeah. And so occasionally you get some heavy weight on there and you need to kind of get somebody to spot you. You know, and, and most, most guys in a gym, 
You know, they, they know because they need it too. So you can even ask strangers to come spot you and they'll come spot you. And those of you that have spotted somebody, you know, um, as they go to lift the weight, the weight bar, many times they can't get it up on their own, but it doesn't take too much to get the, the bar up. You just kind of put your finger up. It doesn't take a lot of strength. It's not like you're, you're yanking 400 pounds. They're expecting you to do that because they're kind of working with you and you're lifting it up. You know, what's interesting is I was in the gym one day. This, this cracked me up. There was a, a guy over there lifting on the bench press. And I had not been watching what he was doing. I was working, doing my own workout. Well, I look, he says, hey, can I get you to, to spot me? And I said, yeah. And he's just an average size looking guy. He's got all these plates on both sides of the bar. And I'm like, man, this dude must be a stud. I mean, I, I couldn't believe how much weight he had on there. And um, he's like, yeah, you, would you spot me? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I'm thinking, just like I always do, I mean, he might need a little bit of help. Well, this guy takes the bar. I mean, he takes the bar off, and it goes down like a sack of concrete. I thought it was going to break his chest. I, he could get it off the bar, but he couldn't get it off. And, and I literally, I was trying to lift, you know, 300 pounds myself this way. I couldn't get it off the guy, and I had to have two other guys help me get this bar off of him. It was the craziest thing in my, and I've never seen him. Like, why are you, why did you do that? But, you know, what would have been even more crazy is if he would have got up from that bench and started giving us all high fives and said, yeah, did you see me lift that? Man, did you see me get that up? And I would say, man, were you even here? What, <laughs> did you black out? Did you forget what happened? And, and of course he wouldn't get up and boast. Of course he wouldn't say, oh, I did my 1%. Y'all did the 99, but I did my one. You know, and flex. Of course he wouldn't say that. He knows if we'd have left that bar on him, he was done. We'd have been reading his obituary the next day. And yet, so many times when it comes to salvation, we want to boast about our 1%. Oh, yeah, I walked an aisle. How'd you get saved? Oh, I walked an aisle. Did you walk an aisle or did a Savior die for you 2,000 years ago? Did you raise your hand? Oh, did you raise your hand or did a Savior die for you 2,000 years ago? It's like, it's like drowning in a, in a, it's like drowning, you're swallowing water and you give a nod to the lifeguard so they see you. And then you get to the shore and say, how'd you say, how'd you get saved? I got saved because I nodded. What? No, you got saved because the lifeguard dove in and saved your foolish behind. <laughs> That's how you got saved. You know, and we sit here and we, and, and we laugh, but yet so many times as it comes to eternal salvation, we want to boast. We want to brag. We want to say what we did, how we started going to church and how we started reading our Bible and how we stopped doing this and we started doing this. And yet we take the focus and the finger off of where God is fingering and God is over here pointing back to the cross of Jesus Christ and you're pointing right here. Wow, how tragic. I, I, I pray our fingers all point to the same place. How'd you get saved? I got saved because Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose again. How do you know you're going to heaven 100% sure? Because Jesus Christ died for me and rose again. How do, you, how do you know that you're eternally secure, that God won't ever judge you again because of your sin? Because he publicly crucified Jesus Christ on my behalf, in my place. He died for my sins and he rose again. That's the only way I know. And if Jesus Christ isn't good enough, I've got no hope. I've got no hope. If he's not good enough, neither am I. So where's boasting? The only boasting is in what he did for me. There's no boasting on my behalf. And that's what Paul goes on to say. Where's boasting? It's, it's excluded. 
It's shut out. It's closed out fully. In fact, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us the same thing, right? It's not of works because if it was, if it was of one work, what does man focus on? We're going to boast about it. We're going to boast about what we did and not boast about what Jesus did. Completely shut out. Why is boasting excluded or shut out? Because the only way we can be saved, now mark this, the only way we can be saved is when we give up and we trust in the merits of another. See, we, the whole concept of faith says that I'm not looking inward. I'm not looking to myself to provide the answer anymore. I realize I don't have the answer. I realize I don't have the resources to provide the solution. And so I'm looking away from myself. I'm looking to somebody else and what they did for me. That's, that's the whole concept of faith. Faith says it's not me. It's, I'm not trusting in me anymore. I'm trusting in somebody else. The second you look away from yourself, the second you look away from yourself to Jesus Christ, you lose the ability to boast. You can no longer boast. Or you're like the guy that we yanked the bar off and saved his life and said, oh man, do you see how much weight I pushed up? Give me a break. Are you kidding me? Faith looks to someone or something else to solve a problem that you cannot solve yourself. Boasting looks inward. Boasting points at something different than what God is pointing at. And trust me, you want to be pointing your finger the same place God is pointing his finger. That's how you can know. That's how you can be assured. And so in the area of God's righteousness, we look to his provision. We look to his provision. We stop looking at anything we can do. We trust in the provision that God has made through Jesus Christ. He can meet our deepest need. Now look at verse 28. He says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now, Paul is making a conclusion, but like most preachers and pastors, he goes on for a few more verses. You know, you try to conclude, then you got, you got more to say. You know, that's kind of how Paul does too. But, you know, he's wrapping up his argument here that a man's justified by faith. He's declared righteous by faith apart from doing anything. Because when you, when you start putting it together, it is so funny how we naturally gravitate back to doing something. I, you know, I find this very interesting as I teach my kids and, and I teach them about this, this whole concept of justification by faith. Put your faith in Christ. That's what saves you. Put your faith in Christ. That's when God declares you righteous. Put your faith in Christ. That's when you receive forgiveness of sins. And then I teach them and teach them. And then I ask them, so, um, so do you have to go to church? Do you have to keep going to church to be saved? And, you know, naturally, until they get used to the way I question them, they're like, oh, yeah, I guess, yeah, you do. You have to read your, so you have to read your Bible to be saved, don't you? Oh, yeah, I guess I do. And it's such a great teaching opportunity. It's like, no, what didn't you understand before? No, you don't have to do anything. And, and naturally, we want to get justified by faith, and we want to slap in a deed. We want to slap in a work. Well, yeah, I got saved by that, but then I started living a good life, so that was probably part of the equation as well. That's not part of the equation for justification. I'm sorry. It's apart from the law. It's apart from good deeds. It's based solely on the work of Christ. And so we talk about being declared righteous in God's sight. We're talking about what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on a day in history, not what you do or you continue to do. That's not justification. 
Justification is a moment in time where God slams the gavel down and he says, you are righteous. And as we looked last week, the righteousness is not something that he gives and takes and passes back. It's a righteousness that's found, as we said, in Christ. So if Christ is righteous, you're in Christ, you are righteous the moment you put your faith in Christ. See, God is taking care of all of this. He has put this in such a secure way that we can trust him for it. And so what we're going to see is that Paul concludes, uh, there's an emphasis there, we're forced to conclude. Why are we forced to conclude? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody can get saved any other way. This is the conclusion. And Paul, is gonna, Paul uses an accounting term here that he's going to use 11 times in chapter 4. It's this idea of writing it down, counting it down. God has counted you as righteous. And so we'll look at that in more detail in chapter 4 when we get there. This word count on. Uh, again, means to write down, depend upon it, reckon. You'll, you'll, you'll see it translated uh, multiple times. And so, verse 29 and 30, he says this, Or is he the God of the Jews only? Again, remember, he's asking these questions to clarify what he's been teaching. Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And so why does Paul ask this question in verses 29 through 30? Well, he's making the point that both Jew and Gentile are declared righteous the same way. In fact, he's going to go into great detail in chapter 4 talking about how Abraham was declared righteous, the father of the Jewish faith. He's going to show how even Abraham was declared righteous by faith. He's going to also show how David was declared righteous by faith. These two big shots in the Jewish religion in their thinking, because the mindset of the Jew, like we've said before, was I'm Jewish, I'm circumcised, I embrace the law, I'm in. That was their mindset. That's how they got saved. And Paul's going to say, no, 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 no. Jew and Gentile get saved the exact same way, and that's when they put their faith in Christ. It's based on the finished work of Christ. And so Paul is very quickly dispelling this concept that there's two ways or two different types of salvation. And um, just for sake of time, I'm going to fly through these points. You didn't miss anything. Trust me, it's right there. (laughs) Uh, And then verse 31, we see this this idea of being rendered inactive as it relates to the law. So Paul asks a very good question in verse 31. In fact, it's this question that launches him off into chapter 4. Okay, this is the question. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. It's a good question. So what, so what went on before? What was that all about? Why, why did we even have the law? You know, I mean, that's no longer, we just throw that out now, right? It's, it, it's worthless, right? That's what that word means. It's useless. It's It's worthless, it's void, it no longer applies. Paul says, certainly not. And so, was the law rendered inactive or made void through faith? This word just means to be idle, uh, to render inactive, inactive, or it means to be useless. And so, what Paul is saying is, do we just disregard the law now, since man is justified by faith alone and not law-keeping? Should we just throw it out? That's kind of his concept there. 
In other words, is there not still value to the law? You know, is there any basis behind the law that God had set up and established and the penalties and the, and the regulations? Is there any value or basis or should we just throw out the whole thing? That's his question here. His answer is an emphatic no. No, we shouldn't. But why? Now, as a precursor to when we get to sanctification, I will tell you this. The law is not there. The, let, me just, let me back up. The law could not make you holy in justification, and the law cannot make you holy in sanctification. The Christian is not to try to live by, by the law to be holy or righteous. In fact, we're going we're gonna to learn again of God's provision, how the Christian can live righteously. And I'll give you a hint. It's in Titus 2, 11. We're going to see it in Romans 6, 7, and 8. It's as you walk by means of the Spirit, and it's as, it's as the grace of God teaches you to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously in the present age. It's not the law of God. Now, that was, that's a precursor. So let's get back to this context now. But the emphatic answer is no, but why? This is, I think, a strong question. Why? Well, he says in verse 31, we establish the law. On the contrary, we establish law. The, the idea behind, behind establish is the cause to stand, to set or place in a position to, to, to hold it up, to uphold it, to fulfill it, if you want to say it that way. And see, this is what we've got to understand, that God's method of making man righteous completely supports the law. Because what does the law say? The law says perfect obedience, and for lack of perfect obedience or perfect righteousness, death. And what did Jesus Christ do? He fulfilled the law. He lived in perfect obedience. The law's demand was death. He paid it for us. And so we're not throwing out the law or saying, oh, no, God changed his mind. He's doing it a different way now. You know, he's not some little kid that's going to go home with his ball because he's changing the rules. You ever played a game? I, years ago, I was, I was um, watching some kids and this little four-year-old, and I was playing with a four-year-old girl, so I don't even know why I cared about her, her game and the fact that she was changing the rules on me as we were going. But, you know, at some point, I wanted to win. I wanted to beat her. You know, and I, don't ask me why. It was the old, I mean, I've grown up since then. I've matured a little bit. But, you know, it was so infuriating, even with this four-year-old changing the rules along the way. Well, yeah, but you can't go over there. Okay, well, I won't go over there anymore. And then she goes over there. Well, wait a minute. You just told me you, I can't go over there. Yeah, but I can. See, that's, that's how that works. And in her mind, that was logical. In my mind, I was getting really frustrated. See, God doesn't do this. God doesn't say, oh yeah, here's my law, here's my holy righteous standard, here's the penalty for sin, ah, but let, let's just do away with that. Let's, let's figure out how to save you apart from the law. Because what that implies is, oh boy, contingency I didn't realize existed, so let me get rid of that and go over here. No, that wasn't how God did it at all. He completely established the law in the gospel. He didn't throw out the law, he didn't change the rules, he completely established the law. You know why? Because the law's righteous demands for sin require death. Require death for the ones that break them. Did God not deal within the confines of the law when he crucified his son? Yeah, that's exactly what he did. He died for all of us lawbreakers. He paid the penalty that the law required. We also see that the law demands perfect righteousness. 
And God also provides his righteousness in the person of Jesus Christ. So the two issues we had that were keeping us out of heaven, we had this penalty that we could not pay. We had a righteousness we could not obtain or attain or earn. God took care of both of those in the gospel. See, he established the law. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law in Jesus Christ. And so what's great about this section, when we talk about justification, God is perfectly just. The law is not nullified. He didn't change the rules midway through the game. He kept them, but he actually fulfilled the law. A perfect uh, God can take imperfect people and make them righteous. This was truly a perfect plan. Now, the next few weeks, when I get back from Liberia, what, what we want to do is we want to show how this, this concept of faith righteousness establishes a law. And we want to show not only that, um, we're going to take a journey through the Old Testament and show how the Old Testament has been testifying to the same truth over, over all these thousands of years, that there's not some new message, some new method, some, some adjusted thinking on the part of God that God has always declared man righteous in the same way. And so we're going to take a, a three-week break from the book of Romans, work our way through the Old Testament, and show how the Old Testament testified and did these same things. We're going to see how um, clearly that this faith righteousness establishes the law. We're going to see in, in, back in Romans 3.21 how this faith righteousness has been witnessed by the law and the prophets. And so join us as we start in a couple weeks, and let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for um, your word and just the, the opportunity to study it. Uh, give us understanding and, and clarity as, as we read it and as we hear it taught and as we teach it. Um, Lord, give us uh, just an assurance this morning that you took care of the issue, the sin issue, the righteousness issue that we could not take care of ourselves, and you did it in full public view, that you're confident in that provision for us. May we also be persuaded and confident as well. Uh, for those who, who might be here or listening that have never put their faith in Christ alone, I pray they do that this morning, Lord, right where they're, right where they're seated, knowing that they don't have to do anything uh, in terms of good works or law-keeping or promise-making to be saved, that you did it all, you accomplished it all on our behalf, and that they simply have to put their faith in Jesus and what he did for them. And so we pray for them this morning. Uh, and Lord, we just uh, pray this week that as we go about our business, that we would be occupied with your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.